As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. To the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell, and today, at long last, we get to talk about an actual U.S. men's national team game. And to do so, I'm joined by a man who's been doing some whales watching. It's Joe Lowry. <laughs> Hello, Joe. Oh, Taylor, that was brilliant. How are you doing? Not too bad, not too bad. I felt like it's been so long since we talked USA, it felt only right to begin with a pun. It feels like what Daryl would have wanted, so I want to continue that legacy, even if it physically hurt me to make a pun that early in the show. That was very big of you. I think Daryl would appreciate that. I appreciate it as well. I'm I'm not a fully pun guy, but I do appreciate a good pun every once in a while. I'm not a fully pun guy. I need that to be part of your Twitter biography from now on, Joe. If you don't mind, we we might be able to make that happen. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Uh, but I was I was like indicating how excited I am in the beginning of this one. I am. I think this is the most excited I've been to watch a soccer game in a very very long time. W- where are you with this national team? Are, are you as hyped, or are you a bit more cautious with some of the new names and uh, keeping a level head and whatnot? Deep down, I know I should be cautious. I know I Mm -hmm. should be taking a more measured approach. But man, it's hard. I'm so excited to see the U.S. play an actual game of soccer. Yeah, there's lots of difficult factors here. They haven't trained a whole lot. The U.S. hasn't trained a whole lot. No, they have not. A lot of new faces coming into the group. Yes, There's a lot of reasons to be measured. But man, it's hard, Taylor. And I appreciate (laughs) that you're sort of right along with me on that. And I think... Almost mm. everyone listening to this show will be right with us on that one. Yeah, I, I hope so. I, I will say, I uh, to distract myself from election coverage, did put out a post on Reddit about what are people excited for. And it was a good reminder that, number one, so much has changed between when, when we last saw the United States play in February and now. Not just from a coronavirus standpoint, but from what players have done and how players have evolved or moved on. Uh, Mitchell Marshall wrote a really nice piece. Uh, that, here's a quote from that. This time last year, Christian Pulisic was trying to find his footing at Chelsea. Gio Reyna was just a whisper of a name outside of Germany. Weston McKinney was holding Schalke together with rubber bands. And Serginho Dest was just a backup for Ajax. All of those players have had drastic changes uh, in where they're playing or how they're playing. Um, and it's the first time, say, we've seen Tyler Adams in 18 months. And I sort of forget all of these things because my brain can be a little bit uh, short-termy and not so much long-termy. But also just because I think as we talk about as much soccer as we do, 
when you're when the team isn't playing, it's easy to sort of forget how much joy they can bring. And I think that was a big thing that I, I kept seeing in those posts was people just being excited to see the national team play, being excited to see how this person has evolved and how they'll fit in or how this player's adjustment to a different position will factor in. And it was just a reminder of how many exciting players are in this pool and that Berhalter has a few of them at his disposal. I think it's we've only seen what Adams, McKinney and Pulisic play together once. I'm not sure we'll see that this time, but just those those reminders of how we still haven't really gotten to see the full strength U.S. team makes me all the more excited to see this team, even if they are not the full strength team. I mean, and there's names in this group, too, who, if you'd asked me back in February, I would never would have predicted would have been on this roster. And sure, yeah, extenuating circumstances around coronavirus, around a, a nearly exclusively European-based group of players. But if you'd asked me in February, hey, is Nico Joachini going to be on this roster? Nico Joachini, I don't know, I'm still working on the pronunciation even. I, I would have said no, of course not. Second time's the charm. That's what I'm pretty sure everyone always says. <laughs> and then if you'd asked me if Yunus Musa would be on this roster, I'd say, who is that? Yeah. Right? I mean, there are these guys that are in this group of players yep. who could be real difference makers going forward. They could not be. Yunus Musa might not even play for the United States. But we're seeing additions to the pool and that, to me as well, is a really encouraging, positive sign that we're seeing some of these younger dual national types, especially, or, or multinational type guys come into this group and potentially make an impact. Mm-hmm. And I will say, with that in mind, I would also caution people against expecting Berhalter to play all of the youngsters. It's not going to be yeah, an all-teenage yeah. 11. We're close to being able to do that, but not quite. But I think we shouldn't expect it to be... Uh, like massively experimental. We also shouldn't be surprised if it is, is I guess what I mean, that like it could go any number of different ways. And I think the biggest thing is that I, I have a feeling Berhalter absolutely does not care about the result of this game. If we win 3-0, great. If we lose 3-0, I really don't think he's going to care. I think it's about sort of reinstilling some of the ideas that maybe he hasn't been able to with the absences. By all accounts, he's been communicating with players and keeping in touch with them and sort of reminding them of responsibilities or sending little clips. But this is the first time he's had this camp together. And as you said, I think we'll only have two full training sessions with the full squad. And given that one of those will be tomorrow, a day before the game, you would expect that one not to be that intense. So I would also say... If we do lose the first game 2-0, don't be particularly disheartened, especially when you consider that Wales have played international games already. They've played meaningful games already in Nations League uh, qualifiers. So I think we should all sort of be excited for this team, but not get uh, overly overly amped and then setting ourselves up for disappointment if things don't go quite as we want. Is that fair, or are you just going to stay uh, optimistic throughout, Joe? No, that's fair. I want to be optimistic, but I want to be slightly realistic and set up our listeners to be in that place with us. So thank you, Taylor, for (laughs) walking us halfway down the stairs so that we're maybe somewhere in the middle trending upwards, though. Uh, And if you want to hear more about some of those names Joe has already mentioned, we did do a roster breakdown where we talked about, I believe, every single player on the roster, how they'll fit in. If we're less familiar with them, we tried to become more familiar with them. So players like Yunus Musa, we we spent some a good amount of time with. So if you want to go back and listen to that, I, I encourage you to do so. But for today... We're going to be looking at Wales and what they do, how they might set up. We're going to be looking at the United States, talking about a few roster or one roster change in particular, but then just some news we've seen out of camp and trying to pick 
our starting 11. Uh, so, Joe, let's go back to Wales uh, and go there. First off, the big news that we should mention up front, Ryan Giggs, the manager. Uh, I keep seeing the headline, Steps Aside for Three Games, which is a fun way of saying was arrested for assault. Uh, I don't really know why that's been the way it's been covered. But, yes, was, was arrested for allegedly uh, assaulting his girlfriend. He has denied those allegations uh, but has stepped away for these three games instead. Assistant coach Robert Page, who was his former international teammate, will take over with Albert uh, Steivenberg, who's an assistant for Mikel Arteta at Arsenal. But there will be no Ryan Giggs. Uh, I, I, I am... I'm conflicted about Ryan Giggs as a Manchester United fan. I, I love him as a player, not so much as a person, uh, and that was before this recent incident, but just wanted to state that up front. So no Ryan Giggs there, but we would assume things will be more or less the same. So, Joe, from a basic tactical standpoint, what do you think people can expect from this Wales team? For Wales, from what I from what I noticed from watching their recent games, they played a game against Bulgaria most recently and then a couple in a slightly more distant past against Ireland and England they're comfortable with the ball, but yep. they're not entirely reliant on the ball. And, and what I mean by that is they're they're competent in possession, and they will do that, and they can do that in a couple of different shapes. But they'll use the ball, they'll move forward, they'll, they'll especially play down the wings, then get the ball forward into the number nine or into the rest of the forward group in the box. So they can do things in possession, and the United States is going to have to be aware of that going into this matchup on Thursday defensively. They'll play, again, in a couple of different shapes. I'm not exactly sure what we're going to see from them. But defensively, they're capable of sitting in a defensive block, winning the ball, and going to goal quickly. Or they're capable, especially at the beginning of games, of stepping high, pressing a little bit, man-to-man in a sense. Not full Marcelo Bielsa or Matias Almeida man-to-man, but more man-oriented in that they'll they'll track individual players. They'll try to discourage passes from going into key opposing attackers, and then force the ball long or just force a turnover higher up the field. So that's sort of a bird's-eye view of what I'm expecting to see from Wales based off of what I noticed from some previous games. Yeah, I, I would agree with you. I would say, like, boiling it down to a basic tactical approach, I think looking at the Ireland game then look at the Bulgaria game, they're capable of playing with a back four. They're also very much capable of playing with a back three. Uh, against Ireland, it was sort of a 4-4-1-1, a 4-2-3-1, if you want that one. Uh, against Bulgaria, which they did win, it was a more of a 3-4-1-2. I am inclined to, if I had to guess, say they probably go with a back three in this one because I think that is something that they're more familiar with, going all the way back to the last Euros, as an example. So I think with the kind of more familiarity there, combined with not having their their manager uh, around, combined with the fact that Aaron Ramsey was not brought into this one, he tends to be that number 10 operator for them in the games that I've seen when he is able to play, which is intermittent at best. So I'm just inclined to think they lean on a 3-4-1-2, but if they don't, I also won't be surprised. What are some other things you saw from them, Joe, in terms of how they like to build up? Is there anything in particular that you were keeping an eye on or you think could be problematic for the U.S.? I'm glad you you led me in that direction because I was going to add to what you were saying, Taylor, talking about the three at the back versus the four at the back shape. I think regardless of which one they go for, we're going to see them build up in a three at the back shape at times. Yeah. And that's because their default left back is Ben Davies. And he will, when they're in a four at the back shape, he will tuck inside and form up with the two center backs and become the left center back in a back three. That's just a possession look occasionally out of a back four. So regardless of what shape they start in or what their primary shape is, 
it's fluid and it's going to change. It's going to rotate during the game at times. It could be four defenders across the back line and, and attackers moving around up front. Other times it, it'll be Davies tucking inside, becoming a part of that back three and giving the opposition a different look. So that's one thing that they really do like to do in build up. They'll, they'll play out of the back a little bit. They're not a, a play out of the back at all costs kind of team, almost like what Berhalter is maybe trying to get the U.S. to do. So they're not going, you know, full play out of the back, but they're also still capable on the ball. And they'll use that left yeah. side rotation with Davies tucking in. Then they'll have that winger on the left side. Sometimes that's uh, Daniel James, I believe. He'll he'll step wider a little bit on that side and be the width. So it's it's fluid. They're a very capable, really so, genuinely solid looking team with the ball. And I think that rotation is something to keep an eye on. Yeah, uh, and I agree with you that they're not like overly focused on making sure they build out on having triangles. If anything, I think that's not a thing that they're very concerned about at all. Uh, regardless of who those central midfielders are against Bulgaria, it was Ethan Ambadou and Matt Smith. Could also be Joe Morrill in there. Uh, what I noticed was, and I got a little bit nervous when you said that back two becomes a back three because I was worried for a moment that I missed the center, the central midfielder dropping in, which is a thing we we often see with teams. But that is not what they do, as you correctly said. They also really don't have those midfielders drop at all. So it seems like they're happy to play between those back three. And if they're going to play forward vertically to those central midfielders, they will. But you don't see those center midfielders fitters dropping in a lot and trying to sort of like like spell a center back so the center back can go on a run or anything like that. I feel like they kind of keep those two in the middle. They don't want to vacate that space. They don't want to be vulnerable to counterattack, which means that they, they build between the center backs and then they look for those wing backs and try to go down the line. I didn't see them very often trying to sort of have quick passing combinations through the center of the field. It seemed like they were much more comfortable going wide, going direct, and then if they lose the ball, so be it. Ideally, they're losing the ball in their up, uh, in their opponent's half or via a long ball over the top. But that then means the opponent is building from deeper in the field as opposed to like uh, Wales coughing the ball up near their goal. I think that's fundamentally something they don't want to do. And without Aaron Ramsey, as you mentioned, Taylor, Wales' real attacking talent is out wide. I mean, Ampadu is a talented young player. He's with Sheffield United right now on loan from Chelsea. But he's their defensive anchor. He's mm-hmm. a part of that double pivot or maybe dropping deeper as a center back and starting in that position. But he's not necessarily their offensive metronome or anything like that. They'll use their midfielders as defensive anchors and occasional, occasionally offensive contributors. But mostly, their attacking talent and their game plan is to go wide. That's exactly right. They'll have Rabi Matondo, who's, who's with Schalke right now. And they'll have Daniel James, as I mentioned, a Manchester United player. They've got Harry Wilson, who's a quality attacker for them on loan at Cardiff from Liverpool. He'll play out on the right or maybe a little bit more centrally and get on the ball on his strong left foot and then drive forward in space. They're real talent for most yep. of these spots. And I'm not even mentioning Gareth Bale here because I, I don't know if he's going to play in this game. He might. He might not. But they're, they're players. They're talented. They're stars. Even the younger players are wide attackers first and foremost. And that yep. really does lend itself well to having the central players be defensive anchors and the wide players be the real attacking threats. Yeah. The the strange sort of wrinkle here is that there is a time when that sort of front three, again, against Bulgaria, it was uh, Daniel James. You mentioned it was Tyler Roberts and it was uh, Harry Wilson, I think, their number seven, who steps in. It makes it a front three. But when they do that, it's usually when they're sort of slowly building at that point. It becomes almost like that back three spreads uh, when they have possession. Then the four in front of them 
also spread. So you basically have all the touchlines covered. And then that front three gets very narrow and moves together. And it's not to say that then they want to try to play through the middle. It's because what they're trying to do is pull in the opposition defense, make them very narrow, and then leave space for either a vertical ball down the channel or a long diagonal over the top that then one of those front three can split off and run onto. And basically by by tightening it up, it's a thing Jamie Vardy is very good at, is you kind of try to pull the defenders in so then you can burst into the channels, then you can burst into that that area of the field. So they're, I just want to make clear that people know they're not like just trying to always spread wide and have everybody as wide as possible. They will then constrict to then explode into the space. And I think that could be a problem for the U.S. because I do think that it will be more of a back four. I think there's a chance that similar to what we've already talked about with Wales, that at times it will be a back three for the U.S. And then you're in a 3v3 situation with maybe Tyler Adams shielding if he is the number six. We'll talk about what the U.S. are going to do later on. But that does feel like an an area of potential vulnerability for the United States, especially with some of the pace that you've already talked about, Daniel James in particular. I'm with you there, Taylor. I mean, looking at the U.S., and and we led the show with, you know, be measured, be realistic in what we're expecting to see from these guys. Wales Wales is a legitimate opponent, right? This team is is quality. And yeah, when they were playing Bulgaria and Ireland, those aren't the the top echelon of European soccer teams. But they're quality. Wales has a lot of talent on the ball. They'll do things with the ball that are nice. They'll spread you wide and then they'll they'll attack in the center like you just mentioned. They can play through the middle if necessary. They're defensively oftentimes solid with their block and dangerous and aggressive with their press. This is a real opponent, right? This is a a talented team that the US is going to have to work really hard to combat both offensively, defensively, and in those transition moments. So I want to be clear, I think, and, and for me, what I, my biggest takeaway beyond the individual tactics and beyond the individual player assessments is that this Wales team is going to be a difficult team to deal with, and I think the U.S. is going to have their hands full. Not that they can't win this game, or I'm not even sure that that matters, like you mm-hmm. said, Taylor, at the beginning of this show. But Wales is a real team with real talent. They are. And, and I don't think this undercuts your point. I think I, I hope it, it sort of serves to emphasize it. In some ways, I think Wales is the ideal opponent for the United States right now because they have some of that name talent, some of that name recognition that we've we've talked about already and, and we'll talk about again. But it's not to say that they are this world-class team that should be qualifying for the World Cup every single time. It's not the Netherlands. It's not even Belgium or something like that. Belgium are better than the Netherlands, so that's a strange way to put that. But <laughs> you get what I'm getting at, which is that they're a good team, but they're not world beaters. And so it seems like a team that even with the United States having this experimental roster – can still find some joy, find some success, maybe get some goals, maybe get a win, who knows. But it's it sort of is a difficult opponent that isn't world-class and we're just going to end up bunkering. To some extent, I think the United States could cause Wales some problems if they try to possess and slow things down and probe for some vulnerabilities. It, it makes it for a very captivating match. So I'm with you. I, I'm excited for the opposition to be Wales, even if they are pretty stern. And can I add one thing to that, Taylor? I, I think... It's funny, when I was looking at the roster and the, the players that they've used in recent games, looking at that Bulgaria game that, that Wales played most recently and won that game one to nothing, I believe, in addition to staples like Gareth Bale and, and Ben Davies and Wayne Hennessy, Wales has so many young, talented players, not unlike the U.S. Yeah. In that game against Bulgaria, all but two of the players in Wales starting 11 were 23 years old or younger. Right, I thought that was ridiculously fitting for this match against the U.S. The U.S. kind of has their Gareth Bale, not the same type of player. I'm not saying that in Christian Pulisic. Right, mm-hmm. we might we might not see either one of those guys in this game. I don't think we're probably going to see Christian Pulisic in this game. 
But overarchingly, there are a lot of similarities in roster construction and player pool between Wales and the U.S., and I just thought that was sort of a funny aside as I was going through and researching for this show. I agree with you. My final thing I would like to say about Wolves while we're talking about that sort of youth and uh, potential inexperience is how I'll phrase it. Uh, Wayne Hennessy, their normal starting goalkeeper, I believe is not with the team, so I'm going to guess it's Danny Ward who's the most likely starter. He's, uh, I think, a backup at Leicester City. We also have a backup at Leicester City when it comes to goalkeeper on our roster, <laughs> so those cancel each other out, uh, which means the United States will win 7-0. I'm pretty sure that's how it works. <laughs> Joe, did you have any other uh, points you wanted to highlight when it comes to Wales specifically? And, and what I mean by that is not like another national team we're going to talk about next, but more so... We're obviously going to be comparing what they're going to want to be doing and maybe some individual matchups when we talk about uh, the U.S. roster and the U.S. lineup. But any other sort of tendencies you spotted that you think people should be aware of? I do want to emphasize one more time. I said it already briefly, just the man-oriented nature of how Wales defend. Mm -hmm. They will – let's just imagine, for for instance, that Christian Pulisic is playing in this game. If if Pulisic drops or if any other attacking player drops off that front line and into midfield – Wales, Wales center backs specifically are going to track that player. Yep. They'll go with players. They'll move out of position. And I want, I want people really to be looking for that because I think that's such an interesting wrinkle to how teams can defend. They're not just willing to sit back in a defensive block, a zonal defensive block. They will move around and they can be shifted. And I'll stop there because I don't want to get into what the U.S. could do or what opposing teams could do to that style of defending but that's just something to be keeping your eyes out for and i'll be keeping my eyes out for that on thursday this is why joe is very good at these things because i think i tried to explain this same concept to him that it went like as i had seen it and i think i did such a poor job that joe was like yeah i think i said what you're talking about and then you have just succinctly summed up exactly what i was trying to talk about with you which is i'm with you that uh the one i i noted against bulgaria was that if the ball would go wide to Bulgaria's left back, uh, Nedjelkov. I have the roster in front of me. That's not just for memory. Uh, Nico <laughs> Williams, the uh, right wing back for Wales, w- would spread wide to deal with that. But as soon as the ball went back to the middle, he tucks inside again. That's not itself revolutionary. That's pretty obvious. But what we saw from the United States, and maybe this is where we can transition into what we saw when last we saw them against Costa Rica, was that you did have a few sort of almost like pre-programmed runs. And if you do have Nico Williams stepping high to deal with that ball out to the left back, that opens that space up. And if it's an automatic, as soon as that ball is going, uh, the number nine or somebody else is running into that space vacated by Nico Williams, there will be opportunities there. So I'm with you that I think what Wales do defensively is interesting. I also think it opens up for opportunity for the United States. Let's talk about the United States then, Joe. Let's talk about what they were doing when last we saw them. But first, let's have a word from today's sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Thank you very much to today's sponsor. Um, Joe, let's talk about the United States. I asked you to sort of uh, do your best to be able to give our listeners a recap of what Burhalter was working on, how the U.S. was playing. I offered to push back our recording time so that you could have more time to do that. And your response was essentially like, no, nah, I could pretty much do that right now, which <laughs> is not Joe being arrogant. It's more so a realistic depiction of Joe's attention to detail when it comes to the national team. 
You spend a lot of time gassing me up on these shows, Taylor, and I appreciate you. You are comfortably feeding my ego just one show at a time, and I'm kind of worried. At well, I this saw rate, Scuff but... doing it on Twitter earlier. I feel like I have to do it as well. <laughs> well, you're too kind. You are too kind. So I want to go through a crash course in Burhalter, or as I'd rather call it, Burhalter 101. Everybody Please. listen up. There will be a quiz at the end. There, there won't be a quiz. Don't worry. Um, so this is not a comprehensive review of what Greg Berhalter has done, but it is a review of what he's done in his year, almost two years in charge of the national team. So at the introductory press conference, and I think this is important, at Berhalter's introductory press conference, I believe at the end of 2018, he said this. He said, we want to see ball circulation and breaking lines, creating goal, sco- creating goal scoring opportunities. That should be the DNA of our team. That was the very last line of Greg Berhalter's introductory press conference, or, or at least close to the end. And that that line about creating goal-scoring opportunities, using the ball, using ball circulation, breaking lines, that's the overview for how Greg Berhalter wants his team to approach possession. He's done that in a couple of different ways. He's, he's tried to invert the right back, which is the Nick Lima experiment that we saw in the first few games of his tenure back in 2019. He would push the right back inside to be part of the midfield double pivot in a, a 3-2-5 shape of sorts. We think that was designed for Tyler Adams. We don't really know that. I don't think Berhalter's ever gone on the record admitting to that. But it more or less now seems like that idea has gone away. It seems like he shifted away from that inverted right back option and tweaked his possession shape just a little bit. Now it seems to me that we should be expecting to see Instead of an inverted right back tucking in and becoming part of a double pivot in a 3-5-2, it seems like we should be expecting the number six to drop in between the center backs and leaving two central midfielders in the middle of the field to form that double pivot. So it's it's the same shape, but it's a difference in the the methods of getting to that final shape. So regardless, though, I don't want us to get lost in the weeds here. Regardless, the idea is the same. The motivation is the same, and Berhalter would tell you that. He's still trying to circulate the ball break lines, and create goal-scoring opportunities. So, Taylor, that's the offensive side. Mm-hmm. Do you want to interject anything, or should yeah. I carry on to the defensive side? Um, well, I guess it's maybe it's maybe a little bit of both, but I wanted to clarify, when you talk about that number six dropping in, how much of that is dependent on who starts at left-back for you? Because my assumption, and I'm happy to be wrong, is that if it's somebody like, say, Tim Ream, and that then allows the United States to have that back three of basically three center backs, the right back gets forward. Do you still expect Tyler Adams to drop in at that point? Or are you basically saying that you think it's more likely that we'll see a more attacking left back, which then necessitates that number six becoming the third defender? That's a phenomenal question. And I think it, it is entirely dependent on what that left back looks like. If it is Tim Ream, it would be foolish to push him high and wide and have him be the whip <laughs> on the left side. But that'd like be the want. definition of foolish, yes. It would be foolish, right? Mm-hmm. It would be it would be silly to ask him to do that because that's not the kind of player he is. He's a center back first and foremost, honestly. Playing Tim Ream in the same way that you would play Anthony Robinson would be uh, honestly a bad call. Mm-hmm. So if Tim Ream is starting, and I think there's a real chance that that happens against Wales, or or at least it will happen at some point down the line that there'll be a more defensive option at that left back spot, we might see a different method entirely of getting to that 3-2-5 shape. Maybe instead of the number six dropping in, we would see Tim Ream tuck a little bit back in, in central and become part of that back three. He could be the left-sided center back joining up with the other two center backs. So then you've still got your three at the back shape, mm-hmm. but then you have to tweak things going forward yep. to get the desired midfield and attacking shape that you want. And honestly, that's not hard to do. That's not extremely difficult to arrive at. It's little tweaks with the midfield personnel or the midfield rotations, rather, and the attacking setup to get to those 
you know, two double pivot, uh, the, the two man double pivot, and then the, the five attackers spread across the front line. So yeah, that's a great question. And I think it's something that we've almost lost the plot a little bit going too in the weeds on, on individual lineups. And I think sometimes it can be helpful to zoom out and think about, well, okay, this is what Berhalter is trying to do. Mm-hmm. We've seen him try to play in that three, two, five shape almost exclusively, not entirely, but, but largely out of that three, two, five ever since he's taken over. And yeah, we've seen him try the inverted right back. We've seen him drop the number six in between the center backs. There's no reason why he couldn't bring a left back back and deeper and get the same three two five shape out of a slightly different group of players in that starting eleven. Okay, all right. So then, what else uh, did you sort of identify in watching past U.S. performances? So that's we've covered the offensive mm-hmm. side of things. Now shifting over to the defensive side of things. This has been a real area of contention, I think, among the. The fan base and even among media watching these games, Greg Berhalter started with the U.S. using the same defensive structure that he used with the Columbus crew. And there's nothing wrong with that idea, but it was the structure itself that I think was problematic for the U.S. They were playing out of a 4-4-2 mid-block, and it it was mushy. It was soft. It really wasn't, it wasn't a, a rigid defensive structure. It was buttery and allowed the other team to advance the ball too easily. And Berhalter noticed that. It might have taken him a little bit too long by... A lot of our estimations as someone on the outside looking in. But Berhalter has shifted away from that 4-4-2 into against Canada last year, more of a 4-2-3-1. And then finally in 2020, the one game we've seen from the U.S. against Costa Rica in February, he finally shifted towards a Liverpool-style 4-3-3. And I know, Taylor, you and Daryl spent some real time breaking that formation down and talking about it. And I think that research that you guys did was really, really wise because... That was a big shift, and Berhalter has acknowledged that shift. At a, at a recent press conference, he said, I think I was very comfortable with a mid four four two block before, but we've talked about the transition from that into more of a four three three defending. It's, it's not a secret, he went on to say. I mean, there's more to this quote, but I'm not going to read any more hmm. of it. The shift has happened, and every indication is pointing towards a four through three continuing to be the primary aggressive defensive shape in contrast to that mushy four four two that we saw for so much of the early part of his tenure. Which I really like. Not the four four two. I'm not a big fan of the mid block four four two. I'm pretty sure I made that pretty clear on a number of yeah, different episodes. Yeah. But the four three three I like a lot more because I think it gives you more variety in how you want to defend from the front. If you do want to kind of try to press and put the defense under pressure early, you can do that with that front three. I think what we saw against Costa Rica was Jesus Ferreira, I think it was, sitting on the number six for Costa Rica who did want to drop in a little bit more. You had your wide forwards come inside to sit on those center backs and then you sort of limit their ability to build out you do force them long in a way that they didn't necessarily want to be forced into sometimes costa rica were content to look long when they had opportunities or available space if you're putting them under pressure they have less of that and you tend to force them out wide that was where joe i thought you did a um in your review of that game, you had that one clip of Costa Rica sort of being forced to dump the ball into the channel. And that was where, again, we saw this sort of defensive approach of Greg Berhalter, in my mind, shining a little bit because Sebastian Legette, I think it was, who was as, as that like left-sided central, more attacking midfielder, does a really good job to sprint wide, cover that ground that I think wins the ball back. And I think that is really like a thesis statement for how Burhalter wants to defend in that setup of put the defense under pressure, force them into sort of chipped long balls out into the channels that then allows your more compact midfield to spread and shift wide to cover and deal with ideally intercept or win the ball and then go right back at that defense. So I am very happy if we persist with that 4-3-3 and I'm really hoping we don't see that 4-4-2 mid block again. 
And the 4-3-3, as Berhalter has called out in the past, it's it's based on the athleticism that they have, mm-hmm. right? You think about Tyler Adams, and he could be playing an 8, he could be playing a 6. Let's not get down into the semantics of that. At, <laughs> looking at Adams specifically, he is a super mobile guy. And if he's healthy, he'll cover ground on ground on ground. Weston McKinney is the same kind of thing. Yeah, he lacks defensive awareness at times. We've seen that really hurt the U.S. in the past. But he's able to move around. He gets on his bike and he travels across the field. Having players like those two guys in midfield and whoever the third player is, we're assuming that those two are more locks in that central area. They have the athleticism to cover the space that you need to. And and because that 4-3-3 is designed to funnel the ball wide, you have the number nine like you just really nailed, Taylor. You have that number nine dropping in, the wingers tucking inside a little bit as well almost making the the 4-3-3 press look more like a 4-4-2 diamond. Mm-hmm. And you've got that number 9 yeah. as the point of the diamond and the number 6 as the other the base point of the diamond. Yeah. That's four players really constricting the midfield space, marking not not not, not man marking necessarily, but at least shadowing players around and discouraging passes into that central channel. Then the other team is going to say, okay, well, we can't break through there, so we have to play wide. And Wales are going to do that almost willingly, which will be a real test for this press. But even thinking about Costa Rica, they were baited wide by the U.S., and then you really have to go. You have to run as soon as that pass gets played out wide. It's probably going to be lobbed in the air, so you have a little bit of time to recover into that space. But, man, you have to shift quickly. And the U.S., I think think Berhalter is banking on the U.S. having the athletes – in the central area of the field to cover that ground and to close that gap, to close the ball wide, trap the ball against the sideline, win it back, and go. And that's that's a great picture when it's working well. It's going to be imperfect, and we will see that, I'm sure, against Wales. It will be imperfect. But the 4-3-3, I think we both agree, Taylor, is a really positive development tactically for the United States. Final like general question about Berhalter's uh, tendencies. When it comes to that sort of front three, when the United States has the ball, when they're building out, we talked about this a little bit last week, but to refresh, what are those three trying to do? So if you've got your, your sort of left winger, right winger, and then that center forward, like you could maybe categorize it as a false nine, but I feel like that, that gets thrown a lot, around a lot and is not always accurate. Uh, so what do you think are like kind of the stated objectives of that front three when the United States is building in possession? When the U.S. has the ball, it's going to depend on the personnel of those three players and the type of player sure. that they are. Thinking about that number nine specifically, if it's Jesus Ferreira, like it was against Costa Rica, it will be a false nine, pretty much. It will be a player dropping down deeper into the midfield, adding an extra number there, then maybe the wingers will be the the verticality and they'll be trying to making they'll they'll be the ones trying to make those those runs in behind the back line. If it's Jossie Zardes, who's really not as comfortable dropping into midfield, and we've seen that before, he's a guy you want in the box, right? You don't want him him dropping in and trying to get touches on the ball when he doesn't need to. You really want Jossie to touch the ball as little as possible until you need him in the last moment. Baralter has talked about before in interviews that he wants to use his number nine and his wingers depending on the types of players he has. If it's Zardes, the wingers will probably tuck inside more and be deeper. If it's a Ferreira type of guy, we will see the wingers be a little bit higher. Regardless, though, those three players are responsible for occupying three of the central channels in the attack. Likely, it will be the fullbacks who occupy the wide channel. Then it will be the wingers who have tucked in a little bit, occupying those half spaces, and then the number nine in the central channel, obviously allowing for some fluidity as the ball moves around. It's it's not as simple as I'd like it to be. You can't just draw it up on paper entirely. But that's the idea. It's flexible, yes, but Berhalter has a plan 
for what to do, or at least something on paper for what to do, depending on who's playing and depending on where the ball is as the U.S. builds up. All right. Well, I think that feels like a good time to transition into who will be playing for the United States. Joe and I are each going to try to create a starting 11, unless you had other things you wanted to run, run us through with when it comes to the national team. No, that's great. All right. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX's Welcome to Wrexham, all new, Thursdays on FX, stream on Hulu. Then let's get to those lineups. But first, let's get today's sponsor, Credible. Credible Credible.com is an online marketplace that allows borrowers with student loan debt to see refinancing rates across a variety of lenders. If you've got student loan debt, then you could benefit. Uh, With a lower rate, you could save on interest or lower your monthly payment, which means more money in your pocket. You can get debt-free faster, and you can consolidate all your student loan bills into one place so you're not playing, paying 14 different people varying amounts of money. You're paying one person one amount of money that makes it much simpler. Yeah, I mean, and you've got serious peace of mind here. I mean, credible customers have given awesome reviews about how much better their financial lives have been after refinancing. That's a huge difference maker. Being mentally healthy yeah. dealing with that is a huge, huge contrast to being so incredibly stressed all the time about how you're doing. Are, are things stressful nowadays, Joe? What are you talking about? It's such a, a <laughs> now you're right. That was ridiculous. <laughs> uh, some of the benefits of using Credible to refinance your student loans are that you see actual pre-qualified rates from multiple lenders, whereas with some online marketplaces, you'll get ranges of rates or ballpark estimates, and it only takes a couple of minutes to check rates. And checking rates does not even impact your credit, Joe. They're so confident. Credible is so confident that they have the best rates that they'll give you $200 if you close a loan with a better rate elsewhere. They, they never sell your data, so you won't receive spam and phone calls from dozens of dozens of lenders. <laughs> Please visit Credible.com slash TSS. That's C-R-E-D-I-B-L-E dot com slash TSS. I'm guessing they can spell out TSS. And when you re- refinance your student loans via Credible, they'll give you a $200 gift card. You fill in a few pieces of information to check what rates you are eligible for. And that's it. Again, that is Credible.com slash TSS. Refinance your student loans and start saving today. Message from Credible Operations, Inc. Not available in all states. Terms and conditions apply. Visit Credible.com slash TSS for more details. Okay, Joe, we can thank Credible for sponsoring this episode, which we have now done. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Let's talk lineups, and let's do it like this. I'm actually going to ask you, we're going to skip goalkeeper for a moment, because I think we can build sort of two different lineups, and it's 
dependent on who that left back is going to be. Do you have a particular feeling or is there a particular person you want to see start at left back? It seems to me that they're really the two options are contrasting in a way, but they're almost the same in another way. And that's why I'm having so much difficulty here. Option one is Anthony Robinson at that left back spot, bombing up and down the left sideline, really staying wide, attacking as he loves to do. Option B, we talked about it already, is Tim Ream staying deeper, probably tucking inside and being part of that back three. If it was Panama in this game, Taylor, I would say, oh, man, let's go for it. Anthony Robinson all day. Let him run as much as he wants. He can defend when he feels like it. Otherwise, let him stay high. In this game, though, for me, practically speaking, it probably should be Tim Ream. But, man, I'm still saying Anthony Robinson all the way just for the sheer entertainment value. All right, so you're going to go Robinson at left back? Yeah, even though it kind of pains me because I'm not entirely sure that that's what Berhalter is going to do. That's fine because here's what we can do. This is the reason why I've started here is because I will then take Tim Ream and I will build a starting 11 in which Ream is playing and we can kind of take that approach. <laughs> you can go a starting 11 with Anthony Robinson playing and whatever that might mean for the approach. I think I was really convinced it was going to be Tim Ream because of the sort of short turnaround time. They don't have much practice. Uh, so maybe you go with what's a little bit more familiar. But then I think about that last game we saw them play with the two more attacking fullbacks. And maybe that is the kind of more familiar thing now. That is what Berhalter wants. But I could see it go either way. So let's have you go Robinson. I'll go Ream. And then we can sort of fill in the blanks from there. Does that sound good? No, that's perfect. That lets us cover all of our bases. That way we almost Hooray. certainly, maybe possibly won't be wrong when the lineup <laughs> comes out on Thursday. All right. So we've got left back settled of sorts. Uh, do you have Zach Steffen in goal? Because I have Zach Steffen in goal. I do have Zach Steffen in goal. I'm not edgy enough to go with Horvath or the other options on this roster. It is Zach Steffen for me, Taylor. Yeah, as much as I would like to see Chaturo Donze, I think he is brought in for the experience to get him sort of around some of these national team names and faces. The other thing, which Brian Sharetta did a good job of pointing out, is that one of the assistants in this camp for the United States will be, or is, Jason Kreiss. And that is not a coincidence. He is there to evaluate players for the U23 team, obviously the Olympic team, ideally. So I think we're probably seeing some players in there for that reason as well. Therefore, I do not see Odunze starting this one. I don't see Ethan Horvath starting this one, maybe against Panama, but I do have it as Zach Steffen. Who do you have as your right back? That's another big question mark for me. Uh, for right back, it's it's not as challenging for me just because it seems like this is Serginho Des' position for as long as he's healthy, for as long as he's playing. He is the guy who I want to see bombing up and down that right side using a lot of the same attributes I just used for Anthony Robinson. Dest is creative. I mean, even a, a realistic attacking strategy for the U.S. could be to isolate Serginho Dest on the right wing and just let him go at it. He's that good. He should be one of the primary attacking focal points of this team, and I think he's my right back. Okay. I think where Reggie Cannon, like, makes things a little bit more murky for me is just that a lot, not, not to the d same degree. I'm not trying to argue that Bolivista is the same thing as Barcelona, but there are lots of comparisons of like have moved to challenge themselves, are young and up and coming, have some familiarity with the system, have played a number of different roles for Burhalter. Ideally, like, uh, you know, usually in the same position, but like being asked to do different responsibilities. Uh, but I think at the end of the day, you're right. That Sergio Dest uh, playing where he is and how he is doing what he's done, I think he is probably an automatic starter. So I'll go with you with Sergio Dest at right back. Maybe Reggie Cannon, but probably Dest. And then I would definitely go ahead and write in in pen, not pencil, John Brooks. 
Yeah, he is the left, uh, the left center back. I almost said left back. That would throw another wrinkle onto our left back discussion, which we don't need to throw on there. <laughs> John Brooks is the left-sided center back, right? He's, he's actually playing games for Wolfsburg. He seems to be healthy right now. He needs to play for as long as he's healthy when he's in this, in this camp when he's not limping off injured. He is the starter at that spot. All right. What, who is partnering him in your mind? So this depends on, uh, Taylor, this depends on whether or not it's Greg's lineup or whether this is Joe's lineup. Oh boy. If we're going for, for Greg Berhalter's lineup, I'm, I'm fully expecting it to be Matt Miazga, right? He I. is the more experienced option at that spot. A good player, to be clear. I like Matt Miazga. I like his ball playing ability. I like his feistiness, even if I don't think I would want to play against him. Can he I seems interject? like a, Please do. I, I just I'm interjecting to say before you tell me who Joe wants to start there, I want you to finish your Miazga point, and then I want to take a shot at who you would like to see starting there. You got it. I'll give you that. I'll give you that one shot, Taylor. Matt Miazga is is a good center back. He's playing minutes in Belgium right now. He's a guy that I really like in this group, and I'm not trying to take anything away from him as I lead into the player who I would potentially like to see a little bit more. Taylor, take your shot. I mean, it's Chris Richards, right? Oh yeah, yes, sir. It is. <laughs> do you do you want to take this one step further and tell me why it might be Taylor, or even just to give me your read on Chris Richards? Because I'm guessing they're fairly similar with how I see him. I mean, I I think it will be Matt Miazga, uh, both in terms of I'm building in my mind the slightly more boring back four with Tim Ream in it. No disrespect to Tim Ream, he is a faithful <laughs> servant, a very good player. It's just it means that the United States won't have that like other fullback bombing forward and creating chances. It means he'll be tucking inside to deal with maybe Welsh counter attacks and some long balls over the top. Uh, but I think Miazga certainly helps with that. With Chris Richards, he's a player that we've talked about a, a couple of different times on this show. A lot of it is like me watching him with Bayern Munich 2 or with like uh, U.S. youth national teams. And I think I'm really excited in what I see there, which is a very smart, capable center back who makes good plays, is confident on the ball, uh, has decent passing. I wouldn't say it's like the greatest passing in the world, but it's good enough. But then it always has the sort of asterisk in my mind of he's playing against reserve teams or youth players. So I would like to hear what you make of him and why you would like to see him start. Of course, yeah. First, uh, Tim Ream, comma, faithful servant. Mm-hmm. Also really does need to be in his Twitter bio if yeah. he does have Twitter, because that yeah, is fair. just, that is fantastic. He is the faithful servant of this defensive group. Yeah. Moving my focus back over to Chris Richards. <laughs> He's a guy who is so mobile and so skilled mm-hmm. offensively. And then that mobility applies to his defensive work as well. He is, or rather, he has the potential to be the complete modern center back. If if we think about Bayern Munich center backs right now, first choice, I think they have David Alaba as the left-sided center back, and then Jerome Boateng as the right-sided center back, with other really talented options ready to fill in and deputize when needed. Thinking about those two guys, they're, they're mobile. Boateng and Alaba can both move forward and drive forward with the ball. I mean, David Alaba has played everywhere for Austria and for Bayern Munich in the past. He's played central defensive midfielder. He's played central midfielder. He's played left back. He's played left-sided center back. Boateng is a center back, but again, that mobility theme is there as well. Bayern Munich create these incredibly versatile, positionally versatile, mobile, skilled, defensively aware center backs. Chris Richards is in that line. He is not David Alaba or not Jerome Boateng, but he is a player who is similar in potential, who is similar in his mold. And so when he's on the ball, he can break lines with it. When he's on the ball, he can drive forward with it. Again, a little bit raw in those areas, as you just mentioned, Taylor. Defensively, though, he can cover ground. We saw this with the U.S. U-20s at the U-20 World Cup. He can track back. He can stop a counterattack. He can recover. He can step forward and win a header. He is a player who I'm really high on, 
Because to me, I watch him play and I say he does everything at, at a very reduced lower level that Bayern Munich starting center backs do. And for me, that's hugely encouraging. For Greg Berhalter, I'm sure that's hugely encouraging. But that's still not enough for me to say that in his very first camp ever with the senior team, he's going to be in the starting group. It's still likely going to be Matt Miazga. But man, keep your eyes on Chris Richards, everyone, because he is something to watch. He is indeed, and he will ever forever have a, a special place in my heart for uh, tweeting out his panic at not being able to find Cheez-Its in Germany. <laughs> that was one of the things he was desperately trying to find. I think he did end up doing so. We got in contact with him to see if he needed a crate of tre- Cheez-Its sent his way. But I think he was he was covered there. But I'm with you that I'm excited for Chris Richards and his future with the national team. Uh, we've got one slight difference, which we're, I think, intentionally making a difference when it comes to our starting 11 so far. I'm going to guess that will not change. We're probably going to have the same person as the more holding midfielder. Yes, sir. It's it's got to be well, Taylor. Do you want to say it on three, just to really unite ourselves in our uh, in our lineup building here? Sure. All right, three, one. two, one. Tyler two Adams. Way. Okay, you, you, you. You're messing with me. It's Tyler yeah. Adams, and it's got to be. We both know it. I like that though, Taylor. You really threw a wrench in that. And I, I mean, I would enjoy to be as a holding midfielder, but yeah, probably not. Yeah, we'll go Tyler Adams. <laughs> It's got to be, right? He covers ground. It seems like Berhalter has finally come around to the idea of Adams playing at the six. That might even be a little harsh to Berhalter, saying that he's finally come around because it makes it sound like he, he didn't know Adams could play the six before. He did, right? I mean, he, he's seen soccer games before. He's seen Tyler Adams play before. But it seems like the rest of the structure around that number six spot has finally aligned to make playing Tyler Adams there a viable option. I think it's just like Tyler Adams is so good at so many different things, and you really could play him in three or four different positions for this team that I feel like Burhalter has always been like, I, I don't want to like commit to playing him in one spot because we could use him elsewhere depending on the availability of other talents. So yeah. I, I know what you mean when you say like it seems like he settled on playing him here and simultaneously that not being discourteous to Greg Burhalter, It is just a thing of I think he wanted to make sure that was the best possible spot for Tyler Adams. And it does seem like it will be, especially with the way that you've talked about the United States, both attacking and defending. He can cover that ground. He can put out fires he can recover the ball very adeptly but then keep the ball moving I think he ticks a lot of boxes uh, I, I'm assuming he can hit a loft a diagonal over the top a la uh, Michael Bradley and Jackson Yule uh, so all in all I think Tyler Adams makes a lot of sense in that spot yeah and I'm saying the stars have aligned to get them to get him at that sixth spot and in reality it might just be the fact that Sergio Dest exists right <laughs> in 2019 we saw the the inverted right back thing we saw Nick Lima do that because we were all anticipating Tyler Adams doing that because there was no right back Sergio Dest wasn't in the picture at that point really as a viable option for the US and so it really was Nick Lima it was Reggie Cannon who was still playing with FC Dallas at the time we weren't sure how he was going to continue develop as a continue to develop as still a fairly young player Sergio Dest is here. There's no need for Tyler Adams to play right back. Reggie Cannon as well can do a very good job at that right-sided fullback spot. Adams now is going to be in the midfield somewhere when he's healthy. If that's an eight, fine. If a number six emerges and, and boots him forward into the midfield, that's fine. And if it's at the six spot, that's also fine. All right. So we we can see a couple different things happening with Tyler Adams, but for purposes of this show and the Wales game, we're going to have him as the base of the midfield. Now we might get into a little bit of disagreement, especially when we look at that left side, be it Anthony Robinson or Tim Ream. Who else do you have in the middle of the pitch with Tyler Adams? For my my Greg lineup, for my Greg Berhalter lineup, I have Weston McKinney and Sebastian yep. Legette. And I'm almost wondering if that's exactly what you have, Taylor. That is exactly what I have. 
<laughs> it's it's it just seems like Sebastian Legette yeah. gets brought in because Josh Sargent can't go to this yep. camp where the Bremen are keeping him there because of the the global health situation that we're currently dealing with. It makes sense. Sebastian Legette comes in. His season with the Galaxy is over. He's got experience. He's played in this new look defensive shape before. As you mentioned, I think I think you said this, Taylor, already. He was one of the central midfielders in that 4-3-3 defensive shape yeah. against Costa Rica. So he's bringing continuity at that spot. Weston McKenney, on the other hand, has played plenty of games for the U.S. in the past. He is someone that Berhalter knows and I think largely trusts. It just seems too logical for it to not be it seems too illogical for it to not be those guys wow i said that in the most confusing way possible i know what you meant though the other (laughs) wrinkle i keep seeing i've seen a number of people listed i think just because it's an easy formation to draw up not necessarily saying that this is what it's going to be but like the united states having tyler adams and weston mckinney in the midfield with Gio reyna as like a number 10 or also in in the midfield with them um, and that is maybe like a wrinkle I could potentially give you is like is instead of Legette, it's Gio Reyna. But I think for the kind of familiarity with the system that he's brought in the way he was, to me, it's him as a number 10. Do you think we could see Gio Reyna as a number 10 or do you, I'm assuming, have him out wide? I do have him out wide, but I want to emphasize the the little bit of nuance here because we talked about that 3-2-5 possession shape already. And I think regardless of whether it's your lineup that we see, Taylor, or my lineup, depending on that left back, Robinson versus Ream, it's going to be that 3-2-5 shape. And so regardless, I don't think we see Gio Reyna play as one of those two, as, as half of the double pivot, rather. Mm-hmm. He's not going to likely play deeper as almost a, a number six. Yeah. He'll be in the attacking areas, drifting in and out of space, yes. But I think it's likely that we see his starting position be on the wing with him having full license to drift yeah. inside and play as a, a pseudo number 10 or more of a yeah. right-sided number 10. So shades of him as an attacking midfielder, but also also not. No, yeah, and I think I think that makes – I really have had this problem of like, but I feel like we see him more central with Dortmund. It seems like that's where he's good like uh, and most comfortable. I also – I still have some questions. I get – criticized like routinely for saying he's slow i'm not saying he's slow i'm saying he is not that next level uh ability fast that maybe you would be looking for out wide but i think then if you do play him wide you're absolutely right joe that more likely is he drifts central to create overloads or to create space for maybe say the left back for wales left wing back for wales goes drifting forward then he can like drift back in there for a long ball over the top but i think you're right that if he is out wide he's still going to be central especially with serginio desk's ability to overlap so i think we've we've sort of moved ahead into Giorena on the right wing with sebastian legette weston mckinney and tyler adams in the midfield i i know people will be sad to not hear us talk more about uh otisoe or musa or ledesma or johnny cardoso cardoso was i believe one of the first two players into camp uh sadly i don't think that means he starts this game i think maybe we'll see some of those guys get minutes i think greg berhalter himself the quote was, in this game, we could have six or seven guys seeing the field playing together for the first time. Uh, I think what that means to me is in the 60th minute, we start yep. using our substitutions and we bring in a bunch of 17, 18, 19-year-olds. Does this happen to you, Taylor, where you forget that coaches are really going to use these friendlies as just opportunities to get everyone off the bench that they can? Mm-hmm. Yep. I always forget that and think, okay, we're getting a great 90-minute sample size of this starting group. And we'll, we'll see a few changes as the game ends. But that's not how this game's going to work. We are yeah. going to see all those players file in onto the field from, from their spots on the bench. And yeah, it'll be fun, honestly, in this game because there are a lot of younger guys. We will still be excited. 
But I just am so bad at remembering how friendlies work. And, and yeah, we're going to see plenty of changes as the game goes on. And for those of you playing uh, TSS, U.S. Men's National Team Bingo at home, here's the spot where I talk negatively about Jurgen Klinsmann. Um, <laughs> I think that was always one of my sources of frustration with Jurgen Klinsmann is that he looked at winning the game in a friendly 1-0 in the 80th minute as this, like, see, it's our system working. And my consternation with that like tended to be rooted in the idea that at that point both teams have made six substitutions or seven substitutions. It's not the same game. It's not the same team. So then saying like, yeah, my system works when it's like, no, you just brought in four attacking players and told them to do stuff. That that is where it gets hard to cover these games. In like once you have a bunch of new players coming in, if they're being asked to do different things, you sort of can't see it in the same way. But you can still evaluate them based on are they doing what the person in front of them was being asked to do and are they doing it effectively? And I think that will also give us a good insight into the level of some of these uh, youngsters and if they are capable of doing that. But just worth noting that we probably won't get too many surprises in the lineup. And having said that, we're going to get what, like like all new fresh faces in the middle, I'm sure. (laughs) I'm sure I've guaranteed that. We might get some different looks at left wing and maybe in that number nine position. Uh, Joe, which of those should we tackle next? Let's tackle left wing, and I actually want you to go first, Taylor, because of how you've crafted Mm -hmm. your lineup. Your left winger is almost a little bit more important. Maybe that's not the right way to put it, but because you have a defensive-minded left back, your your left-sided central midfielder is important to the attack. He might be spending more time in the half space instead of of deeper down the field as part of the double pivot in the 3-2-5. Your left winger might be more important drifting inside occasionally or just providing more attacking width in Mm -hmm. the attack. So who is your player that you have penciled in at that left wing spot? So ideally, it's Christian Pulisic. I I do not think he plays this game. I don't think he plays really any minutes. Like maybe he'll get 10 minutes here and there. But I think Burhalter's that quote about how like it shows his dedication that he wanted to be in camp and around these guys, not he wanted to be in camp to challenge for minutes. I think if anything, he said at the end of a paragraph about what Pulisic means and how important he is to have in camp, he said like, oh, and he's day to day. Like, I, I think that that shows you he's not necessarily being considered as a starter. I I hope I'm wrong, but I also kind of hope I'm not because I really don't want him to pull his hamstring and be out for the rest of the season. So if it's not going to be Christian Pulisic, I have it as Ulianis. Ooh, I like it. Okay, tell me why. Part of it is definitely that we saw him there in February, uh, and and it seemed as though that worked. If it ain't broke, that sort of mentality. But I think he also does a lot of what you just talked about, Joe. I think if it is going to be Tim Ream, I think Ulianis is capable of causing defenses lots of problems. He has the pace, he has the dribbling ability, and he has the self-belief to back up both of those things. I think he also seems to do, like, he's very good at executing what Burhalter wants. Going back and watching that Costa Rica game, you don't hear a lot of Burhalter asking him to adjust, telling him where he needs to be, screaming at him to cover. It feels as though Ulianez was doing a lot of things that he had been briefed to do sort of naturally, uh, which is pretty impressive given that I believe that was his first uh, appearance for the national team. And certainly as a youngster, like rose to that occasion, could have been sort of overwhelmed by it. But I also think he will be a sort of attacking outlet that maybe other players aren't quite as confident or capable of being at this point. I love that. I love that because Giannis was really good in that Costa Rica game. He played oh, this score. left winger role and yeah. grabs that penalty, right? Yeah. He does just about everything that you could have asked him to do at that left wing spot. 
there's no reason to not have him in this lineup again. And as I say that, of course, I have Tim Weah as my left winger. <laughs> not because yeah. I hate Ulianas. I love Ulianas. And I think we talked about that this, this last show that you and I did talking about this roster. But Tim Weah, I think, might play a part at this left wing spot, at least in my lineup. He does play a part there because he's not getting minutes right now for his club team. This could be a great chance for him to... Mm-hmm. get a chance to show Leal that he can still play soccer and run around a little bit. But if you have him at that left wing spot in my lineup with Anthony Robinson bombing up the left side, Wea could occupy that half space a little bit and play, again, as a pseudo number 10, like I talked about with Gio Reyna. is comfortable inside. He can make those runs behind the back line if needed. If our number nines drop into midfield, he can make that, that line-breaking run in behind the back line. He's just a skilled guy who can play anywhere across the front line. He's got a little bit more experience playing real professional games than Ulianas does. But all that to say, flip a coin for me. I love Ulianas. Gio, uh, mm-hmm. Gio Wea. Oof. <laughs> Tim Wea is another really talented guy. And either way that goes, it's a young, promising player at that left wing spot. And I guess you could make the argument I'm about to make for both of them because I believe I'm correct in saying that Juliana is also not getting consistent minutes at correct. club level right now on loan at Heronven. Uh, but I think you may have swayed me a little bit with Timothy Weah as it being – sometimes we talk about the national team like being called in, being an opportunity to put them in the shop window a little bit or sort of raise their estimation. And I don't think that's necessarily it. I don't think Timothy Weah is looking for a new club. But I think you're right that if you're Lille and you have this player that is getting you know, 10, 15, 20 minutes here and there, has had injury issues, what have you, and then he goes to the national team and starts against Wales – it might just just be a little reminder of like, oh, yeah, that guy's good. And I know that sounds silly and it doesn't seem like a thing that would really factor into club thinking at all. And I'm sure it doesn't from a managerial standpoint of like, oh, Greg Berhalter said he was this. Well, in that case, we must start him. But it's just it's more of a when you look at your players returning from international duty, if Timothy Weah sits on the bench for two games or gets 10 minutes in a game, the thinking there might be like, yeah, that's what he does for us. That feels about right. If he starts both games or plays all 90 or 60 minutes against Wales, gets a goal, creates some chances, if you're Lille, you might see that and think like, oh, right, he can start games. He is a good attacker. Let's give him some chances. So you honestly may have swayed me with that argument in and of itself. I still think you could maybe extend that exact same argument to Juliana's a little bit. You'll notice that I fluctuate on his name because I want to call him Uli. But given that it is Ulysses, I feel like Uli Ulysses is probably not correct. But uh, it may well be Ulysses Yanez, it may be Timothy Weah, but either way I'm with you. I don't necessarily know if it matters that much to me because I'm excited either way. We'll probably see both of them. We will We will almost certainly mm-hmm. see both of them in these two friendly games, yeah. right? Regardless of who's starting, adding Conrad De La Fuente as an option on that left side, also an option wide right or, or tucking inside off that right hand uh, touchline. Is that, that's what it's called, right? The sideline mm-hmm. touchline? I always get sideline those touchline. confused. Okay, sideline touchline, handline. Yeah, whatever. Perfect. <laughs> I think there's a real chance we see all three of those guys in these two games against Wales and Panama. But to close that left-wing discussion, Taylor, I just like the image of Leo's coaching staff huddled around refreshing Twitter <laughs> to, read, uh, to read what Greg Berhalter has said about Tim Weah. Yeah. I think that's how I'm going to choose to think of it, even though you provided a much more logical <laughs> path for that line of thought. <laughs> Well, here's the other confusing thing about Timothy Weah. He could also start as the striker for this team. Uh, Greg Berhalter himself said that uh, that it could be Timmy, I think he called him. It could be Joaquini. It could be Sebastian Soto. Like, I, the, I would have it as Timothy Weah as my number nine, uh, both because he has experience and has played there. I just, for some reason, what what sort of bothers me is I think Berhalter 
doesn't, in my mind, may well be wrong on this, doesn't necessarily love trying people in different positions that he doesn't really like want to utilize them in or hasn't previously utilized them in. We may see Tim- Timothy Weah. I wanted to put him as my starter, but for some reason, I-, I just feel like though he plays as a striker for Lille on occasion, he has played out wide for the United States under Berhalter. It feels like that's what he will do until it's not what he does. So if Timothy Weah starts this game, then from now on, I will happily say, yeah, he could be a replacement number nine if we need one. Uh, but in the absence of Timothy Weah, I have it as Joachini. As do I, sir. Okay. As do I. And I'm curious, again, as to your reasoning, and then I'll, I'll fill you in with some of mine as well. Yeah. Uh, um, okay. So I've talked about why I don't think it would be Timothy Weah. It's not the best explanation, but it's kind of where my heart is on that one, which then no, leaves I, I, To interject, sorry, to interject mm-hmm. there, I'm right there with you, Taylor. Okay, I think cool. that was honestly a brilliant point, and I hadn't thought of it. So okay. carry on. Yay. Well, thank you for bigging me up now. I appreciate that. <laughs> so then it comes down to Joaquini or Soto. Uh, watching Sebastian Soto, like, like, I feel like the way I tend to talk about him is negative. And I don't want that to be the case because, again, we're talking about a 20-year-old player, very young, playing for Telstar in the Erste Divisie. Still has a long way to go in his career. But I, I see – or what I've seen from him for Telstar is more of a like physical battler in my mind and is good with the ball, is, is nice and precise – but I just like I, I don't see it as much fitting the system as I see Joachini uh, playing for a team that I cannot pronounce no matter how much I try. So I will just skip it and say it's C-A- It's Scott Con. He plays for Scott Con FC. That's what I'm calling them. <laughs> um, but like the the mobility, the movement, he fights for things, he battles for things, but then has the technical ability, can score goals, obviously. But a lot of it really is just the like. I'm going to call it like problematic pace that he is very quick in these little darting 10 and 15 yard runs to get into space to to link up. And that's something that Jesus Ferreira did when he was playing for the national team in February. And I just see similarities there that make it feel more likely to me that it's uh, Joaquini as opposed to anybody else. I like that. I like that that thought process there for me. Joaquini, and the reason why I've got him in my lineup is because I just want to see him more than I want to see Sebastian Soto, <laughs> even more than yeah. I want to see Tim Weah at that number nine spot. I'm so intrigued by this guy, Taylor, from when we did our roster yeah. analysis last week, looking at his film for, for Scott Kahn, looking at him <laughs> play up top and, and be so able happy. to... I'm glad. I'm glad. <laughs> Watching how he plays and drops in sometimes and, and extends against the back line other times and, and tries things. He'll flick the ball onto a winger running in behind the back line. He'll play a little cheeky pass here or a, a different clever pass there. He's a guy who, who can do all those things and then get in the box and create real danger with his shots when he's in that space, with his movement, with his actual shooting ability, all of those things. I just want to see him play 60 minutes or 45 yep. minutes against a higher quality team than he can play in, in Ligue 2. I want to see him get actual minutes against higher quality players because that's really, for me, a huge milestone for him. And if he performs well against Wales, I'll say, okay, maybe this guy can hack it in, in Liga, or maybe he can hack it somewhere else in Europe if he goes out on loan at some point or, or makes a move. But right now, I just don't know if he can do that or not. And I think a chunk of minutes against Wales, against a higher level, will get us closer to knowing the answer to his actual ceiling. 
So we've gone pretty long at this point. I don't want to go too much longer, but we've got our starting 11s. The only difference is, is I have them. I have Julianez on the left. You have Timothy Weah. I have Tim Ream. Uh, you have Anthony Robinson. I, I think if you, if you force me to really pick one or the other, I think it will be Anthony Robinson just because of that Costa Rica game. It is really pretty much entirely dependent on that if that is what the United States is going to do. But we shall see either way. The last thing I wanted to ask you then, Joe, are there any particular matchups or sort of like like battles that you're going to be looking at or you sort of identified as being particularly important in this game uh, that we haven't yet already talked about, I should add? Yeah, I can't remember if we've talked about this or not because it has it's been it's been a minute. It's been but a while. I think mm-hmm. I think Gareth Bale or maybe Harry Wilson as that right-sided winger for Wales or or just a right-sided attacker, depending on their shape. Mm-hmm. Running at, in my lineup, running at Anthony Robinson is scary, right? And running at John Brooks over there, who is athletic in his own way. He's got those long legs. He does cover ground, but also somewhat brittle, I think, in how I think of him. Not just because he's injury-prone, but because of how long his legs are. I feel like it takes him a little bit longer to move sometimes. Having those talented Welsh attackers running against those somewhat weak or at least somewhat questionable U.S. defenders on the United States' left side, mm-hmm. that could be an issue. Add in the the right wing back for Wales, Neko Williams. Add in these talented guys, and I've got some question marks about how that's going to look for the United States. See, I was feeling all optimistic and positive, and now I'm slightly concerned because you're sl- slightly worried about the United States' left side. I'm worried about their right side. Oh, because, cool. n- like, we have both kind of agreed we expect it to be Serginho Dest as an attacking, getting forward, creating chances sort of fullback. The problem there would be, and I think you said this earlier in the show, the very likely left winger slash left side attacker for Wales is Danny James, who is not the most technical of players when he plays for Manchester United, but is incredibly fast. And if uh, Serginho Dest gets caught or is out of position and there is that gap, I have some concerns about, say, Matt Miazga or John Brooks, certainly Tim Ream if they switch sides, which they will do. Wales will switch those attackers from time to time. The pace could be an issue, and then if it is uh, Daniel James on the left and, say, Gareth Bale on the right, suddenly you've got sort of vulnerabilities in a couple different spots. So I think I would I would encourage fans of the national team to look at who Wales are starting up top and then prepare themselves accordingly for what could be a successful evening, but also a potentially long evening given the pace and the way Wales want to attack. That's a great observation. Those those spaces outside the center backs, but inside of the fullbacks, right? If you can visualize yep. that, thinking about mm-hmm. a back four, those spaces, because of how the U.S. likely will want to play, or if not against Wales in future games with Robinson going up the left and Dest up the right, those spaces outside the center backs are going to be vulnerable. And regard, almost regardless of who the attackers are, but in this game it could be magnified because of the quality that Wales have out wide. Those can be weak points for the United States defensive structure. One more thing, if you'll indulge me, Taylor. Yeah, one please, more please. one more matchup or, or just generally tactical thing that I'm going to be watching for between these two teams is how Wales defend Gio Reyna. If he yeah. is if he is that right sided winger who's tucking inside, playing as a pseudo number ten in the right half space, Gio Reyna is going to want to drop deeper. And he's going to want to get on the ball and do things with the ball. Tuck inside, maybe. Slip Joachini behind the back line, combined with the central midfielders, whatever. Giorena is going to want to do that. But Wales, obviously, are not going to want him to do that. That's not rocket science here. They're going to, because of what I talked about earlier, they're going to defend Giorena very tightly. Or at least that's what I'm anticipating. Dropping uh, one of their, their defenders along the back line with Reyna. Imagine he tries to come on on down into midfield to try to get on the ball from Tyler Adams, let's say. Adams feeds the ball to Reyna. 
but Reyna's almost certainly going to have a defender right on his back. Because Wales defend in that man-oriented way, they're trying to discourage that pass from the United States attacking players. So how the U.S. deals with that, how they get Gio Reyna on the ball, especially without Pulisic as we're expecting, Reyna is likely one of the primary playmakers in this group. And if he can't get on the ball because of how Wales track him, that could be a real issue for the United States. All right, so we've got... Some potential exciting moments, some potential opportunities, and some vulnerabilities. Mostly, we've just got enthusiasm for the U.S. men's national team playing again. Again, that game, Thursday afternoon, Joe and I are going to be back. I'm going to guess Thursday night, based on <laughs> uh, the watching and then rewatching and then discussing and then recording. Uh, but we will be back to review that game. Uh, but for now, Joe, I wanted to say thank you very much for taking all the time to watch all of the footage, prepare all of the things, and then talk all of the national team with me today. Absolutely, Taylor. We'll